0: hey true north welcome to our fifth episode of our study through the letters of john my name is eugene i'm a member of our pastoral staff here glad and excited to have you and what we'll do for this episode we'll be reading first john chapter 3 or going over that section so if you have a bible in front of you or if not if you just switch over to the app if you could read really quick first john chapter 2 verse 28 all the way down to the end of chapter 3 which i believe is chapter 3 verse 24. Uh, I just ask you just to pray, read that, write down any thoughts you have, any questions, and then we'll reconvene in a couple of moments after you're done. I'll share my own thoughts and other implications from the text. So I'll see you in a little bit. I just want to again list out some observations that i have from the text uh just some quick implications that i hope we could take with us for this reading session uh, that we're doing together um but what i want to first go over is the first two verses of or basically the the last two verses but the the first two verses of our section uh chapters 2 verse 28 to 29. um if you've been kind of following along you'll remember the whole point of first john is that john is trying to reassure the church Uh, with heretics and the so-called secessionists uh, that Jesus is still who he says he is and that he is who he prescribed him to be in his gospel and this is what he writes following his train of of thought to end chapter 2 verse 28 and now little children abide in him so that when he appears and he of course being Jesus we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So, one thing that's been really sticking out is John is even in the Gospel of John, and you know we're in the sermon series, and even the letter that we've talked about before. A lot of the language that John uses to describe our relationship or our, you know, what what our relationship should look like with Jesus is a very intimate. Description, And one word I really want to focus on in this section is John gives us the command of, a hey, abide in him like little children. And what does that mean? That doesn't mean to be childish. It means to have childlike faith. Jay talked a little bit about this in this past sermon, this past Sunday, that even when you look at children, uh, there's, there's a lot of qualities that they have that emulate, I think, the pureness or the potential of human life. That even though, you know, if you're a parent, you know this, even though your kids might have a lot of energy, have a lot of chaotic energy, maybe even sinful energy, debatably, uh, there's a level of purity to them. Uh, Jay mentioned that there's no ambition in children. If you you really ask them what they need, it's not, hey, I want to be, you know, the eldest son or I want to be, you know, this position. It's just, oh, I want to be with you. I want to be in relationship with you. And I think John kind of gives that as a general prescription to the church and to us. Little children abide in Jesus. And I think that's really helpful. And, and this might be a point that I'm, I'm, you know, repeating. But hey, I'm repeating it because to me, John is. Our relationship with Jesus in the Western world, I, I don't know if many of us could say that we abide in him. So I, I hate to do this, but in the Greek, abide is meno, and it's a verb, is a present indicative verb, and and basically what that means is it's, it's a continual action, that what John is saying is, hey, you have to continue to, and that, that Greek word meno means to dwell, to abide, to remain, it's this continual action of staying with Jesus in this relational intimacy, and Uh, This might be more of a, I guess, self-observation, but I've realized no one's taught me how to do that, especially growing up in the church. I think if you grew up in a charismatic church, that might be a little bit different, but I grew up in a very Baptist church, a very Korean Baptist church, and a lot of it was, hey, just make sure you have the right actions, the right behavior, and then you're set. And John's going to talk about how that correlates with being in relationship with him. But I realize even as a, a your pastor, one of your pastors, uh, I lack so much maturity, knowledge, experience in abiding in him. What does that look like? And I think a lot of that is kind of just being in relationship with him. Uh, It means reading the word, it means praying, it means integrating Jesus, not just as an idea, as I talked about before, not just as a theoretical system, not just as a philosophy of life, um, but to see him as an actual presence in your life, that everything you see is shaded by Christ. And it's a continual thing that we do. That's why we meet together every Sunday. That's why we are... You know, hopefully, trying to read continually, pray continually, think about him continually, because so much of our mind will wander. So John frames this whole section by saying, "Hey, make sure you abide in him, stay with him." And he, interestingly, what what is the the hindrance to that, right? So whenever uh, New Testament authors, John, uh, mainly Paul, but anyone in that's writing an epistle or a letter. Uh, they'll give you usually, uh, hey, this is something that you should do, and what they'll do really quickly after is this is what's going to stop you from doing that. And you might think, okay, what will stop us from abiding in Christ? So to continue that verse, and now little children abide in Him. So this continual action, don't just don't just set aside Jesus as an idea, but be in relationship. This continual action of dwelling with Him. So that when he appears, we may have confidence, and and this is a key part, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Uh, it's interesting to me that John prescribes the greatest hindrance to being in this continual relationship with Christ is shame. It's not guilt; it's shame, and, and there's there's a stark difference. And I've talked about this a lot, and I, I think this is really important for us to understand that often the greatest hindrance to following Jesus with everything that we have, is not behavior, it's not the wrong choice, um, but it's the deep shame that lies in all of our hearts and all of our souls. Uh, what is shame? Uh, I think there's a stark difference between shame and guilt, uh, and, I, and I'm and i stealing this a little bit from Brené Brown, who's, who's a famous, Ted, she gave a really famous TED Talk on shame, and she's kind of the, you know, almost the world-renowned expert on shame. But to summarize what she says, and, and most, I think, therapists would agree with this too, uh, guilt is doing something wrong. Shame is when that evolves into feeling that you are wrong. So, for example, if, you know, uh, let's, what's, what's a good example? Let's just use my son. I, I might use him too much, but we'll just use him in this example. Uh, if, if Eli, I don't know, let's say he hit his sister Sydney, my, my youngest daughter, there's a guilt to that, that there's, hey, there's something that you did wrong. And you should feel that, that, oh, hey, this is not the right action to do. But if I don't parent well, if I just lash out and yell at Eli and say, what are you doing? And just really go at him. Oftentimes what can happen is that guilt will evolve into shame. Meaning that Eli no longer thinks, oh, I did something wrong. Oh, but my dad is so angry at me. Oh, there's there must be something wrong wrong with me. And what happens when shame kind of enters into our soul is it it almost changes how we view who we are. We we kind of shrink or hide at any notion of our mistakes because what shame tells us is, hey, that's not just a scar, that's not just a mistake, that's not just a sin that you committed. That's who you are. Right? And, and this is if you even look at your own, you know, personal sin history or if you audit that, um, you can see this as a as an endless loop that just kind of keeps you uh, locked into these continuous sins. So porn is a really good example. Um, porn is so wrapped up in shame. Because oftentimes, in my experience, the church doesn't do a good job talking about sex. And because of that, it doesn't do a good job of, I guess, educating and also fighting sexual sin. Because you can't talk about it because if you do then you're you're inviting you know weakness or you're inviting criticism into your life and people will look at you kind of funny or differently so what happens is you watch porn and then you say man what's wrong with me and because i can't tell anyone i have to hide this and it's it's who i am and it's just this cycle that doesn't stop and basically what john is saying is shame that that feeling that the idea that it's not something that you did that's wrong but that you are now completely wrong, that is our greatest hindrance to seeing and following and abiding in Jesus. Because what Jesus' arrival does for us is that it cleanses us of our sin. That when Jesus died on the cross, what Jesus was saying is, whatever your past, present, and future sins are, they have been cleansed. That I no longer see, that God the Father no longer sees us in our sinful state but that he sees the righteousness of Christ poured over us. But yet, we have such a hard time as human beings to do that. So that's why so much of being in community, in church, in a group, is not just to, hey, we're going to gather around and just worship and sing together, but it's an invitation to, hey, you have to tackle this shame together. And think about this. John is writing to the church, and what he's saying is, as a body, hey, little children, abide in him. And together, make sure you don't shrink from him in shame. Because shame can only be solved through community. It can never be solved on your own. Whenever you try and fight shame by yourself, it's never going to be solved. Because shame begets shame. So basically meaning that when you feel shame, it's just an invitation to feel more and more and more until you hide yourself. Just like Adam and Eve did in the Garden of Eden. So... So know that okay first point hey abide in him but to to be with jesus is continual action of dwelling with him and and the greatest hindrance to that is shame and that we need community to break that but moving on what, what are some other uh verses that stuck out so i know this is a little bit of a long passage so i'm gonna not go through everything but just skim a couple of verses but verse seven really stood out to me whereas john continuing his, his line of thought he says little children let no one deceive you Whoever practices righteousness is righteous, as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Verse 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him. Again, this abiding language. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So, to give, again, a historical context, I think John is pressing, hey, you know, he kind of ends it by saying, you know, whoever doesn't love their brother isn't born out of to be, or sorry, isn't a child of God. Why is he saying that? Well, because in in this context, these successionists, when they came in, they were dividing the church and then they were kind of just allowing sin to be rampant, but also allowing church members just to kind of detest or question or hate one another. So what John's saying is, hey, you have to practice this idea of righteousness. And I think that that really stood out to me because what John and, and John's very careful with his words, because, you know, we believe that it's inspired. It's from God. He doesn't say Hey, whoever uh, completes righteousness is righteous. He says, verse 7, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Why is that such a big distinction? Uh, I think uh, this might be a point, again, that I've repeated, but I think John's repeating it. I think so many of us see Christianity as chasing moral perfection. And that until you get to that state of moral perfection, that you're failing as a Christian. But what John is laying out for us is discipleship, or Christianity, or following Jesus, or abiding in Him, what that mainly is about, it's not about achieving moral perfection, it's about striving for righteousness. It's this process, it's this transformation that John and Jesus is ultimately more concerned about than the end results. Again, he could have easily said, hey, whoever perfects righteousness is righteous. No, he says whoever practices righteousness righteousness is not just okay. He is righteous. What does that mean for us? Well, verse 8, he continues by saying, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, right? Strong words. But I think in these kind of two verses, there's there's this small secret that John is giving us. Habits, they really matter. <laughs> you can have all the willpower in the world. You can want something as had as you want but dallas willard puts it really well he's he's not there he says choice is where sorry choice is where sin dwells it's not in the mind it's not in the desire it's the choices that you make what does that mean for us Uh, as christians it's not just what you want because this is the thing your heart and we'll get into this to end the study in a little bit your heart is very fickle Uh, it changes all the time what you want changes all the time. But John is saying, as Christians, what is the utmost importance, what's upmostly important in our transformation are the habits and structures we place around our lives to protect our broken desires. Again, whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. What does this mean for us practically? What's the implication? Uh, don't wait to feel something to pursue god uh, your feelings will come and go your emotions will come and go and i want to be careful your emotions they're what john isn't isn't saying and what i'm not saying is i'm not saying they're not important but john's giving us this framework that your heart is so fickle you have to set up these habits and these structures around you to protect what your desires are that when you say, hey, I'm going to read scripture daily. I'm going to pray daily, even when I don't feel like it, that through those actions, my desires will change. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. So I hope that's helpful. The last kind of thing I want to point out is that at the end of chapter 3, from verses 19 to 24, uh, let me read it for us, and then I'll end with my own observations and implications. That we believe in the name of His Son Jesus Christ and love one another just as He commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God and God in Him, and by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. So a lot of abiding language to end, but uh, let me break this down for a couple uh, for a couple observations. In the beginning, I, I, this is I think this is really helpful too. John says we are of the truth. And reassure our heart before him. Reassure your heart before God. What John is saying is so often, our heart, again, is so fickle that we have to talk to ourselves. We have to preach to ourselves. Um, There's an old preacher by the name of Dr. Marlowe joins. He puts it this way. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. So much of our distance from God, so much of our spiritual unhappiness, even so much of our just overall unhappiness, I think it comes from our soul listening to ourselves rather than talking to ourselves. What John is being adamant about is, look, your heart always changes, and it it needs to be talked to, it needs to be reasoned with. That's why we have sermons, that's why we have scripture, and that's also why we need to make a habit, again, as my previous point, of doing this. Because if not, it's so easy for our heart and soul to slip back into just listening to our own sinful desires, listening to our suffering. So again, talk to yourself, but also, verse 20, for whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. That's really interesting that John puts it this way. Um, it, it's almost, he's saying, you, you're the greatest enemy to, to follow Jesus is not the devil, but it's you. Um, because your heart, it's not just, you know, wanting things, but it's also, as, as we just talked about, heavy in shame. What John is getting at is that grace is a medicine that does not go down easily. Because what grace requires of us is a lot of transparency. Uh, There's a quote that I use in a couple, I think two sermons ago that struck me really powerfully. And, And let me read it out for us. A pastor by the name of Rob Reimer, he writes, We cannot overcome whatever we will not admit. Light is a gift. It is not an intrusion. We cannot overcome whatever we don't admit. Grace the power of Christ's grace and God's grace to us is contingent upon how much we're willing to admit to him because this is the thing it's so hard to do so because your heart is always condemning yourself if if you think about it and this is more about a self-observation so maybe I'm wrong but even in my own kind of personal engine like how I get through the day so much of how I'm finding motivation it's not from my own convictions but fear of condemnation for my own heart. So meaning, man, if I don't do this, how are people going to view me? If I don't post this, man, how are people going to see that I'm, you know, not FOMO or I'm not with my kids or whatever it may be. And if I'm honest, I think a lot of us feel the same. That so much of our life is not built on the convictions that we have, but the condemnations that our heart brings. And what John's getting at is this. He reminds us, God is greater than our own heart. That's such interesting language and he continues by saying he knows everything. John is trying to remind us, look, you get so wrapped up because and this again, this is more of a self-observation, but I think it's correct for all of us. The reason we're we're, we're living more out of fear than conviction is because we're so worried that someone's going to find out who we are. We're so worried that someone's going to accidentally intrude into our privacy, into the the dark parts of our soul, into our shadow self and be like, whoa, that's not who I expected. And we think once that happens, it's the end of us. But John says, look, God is greater than our heart because he knows everything. He knows all that stuff. That's why he went to the cross. That's why Jesus went to the cross for us. What John is telling us is one of the hardest things to do. But what he's saying is, look, you have to open yourself you have to admit to yourself not condemn yourself but admit to yourself not shame yourself but confess to god these are the things i've been hiding between you between other people even even to myself and remind ourselves god knows everything and then he ends the the whole chapter by by writing this in verse 24 Whoever keeps his commandment abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Uh, You know, when you read that, you might think, oh, this, this kind of sounds like legalism, right? Like, oh, I have to do stuff to abide in God? And I want to correct that misinterpretation that a lot of us may have. Uh, salvation is more than just transaction. It's transformative. What I mean by that is, if you've been raised in the church long enough, uh, the Jesus that we know, the gospel that we believe, the cross that we look at, it becomes a mere transaction. Meaning, hey, God did this. He forgave my sins. Then I'm good to go. But that's just the beginning point of what Jesus is doing on the cross. Well, God is, and Jesus' ultimately desire of us is not just to be cleansed of our sins, although that's very important, and that's already done. He cleanses us from our sins so that we can be transformed greater into the image of God on this earth. Salvation is not merely transactional, but it's transformative. Meaning, look, discipleship, Christianity, it's a process. It's this It's this continual, habitual I'm going to follow God's commands, not because I just want to, because if that's my motivation, that's going to fade. But it's because I trust that God has a better vision and picture of who I can be, and that I trust that his commandments are leading me into that direction. John Mark Comer puts it really well, he says, sin is ultimately a refusal to growth. And I think within this context, that's so true that so much of our sins are there it's kind of like our infant selves yelling and and you know fighting back against our parents saying no 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 i want this i want this lollipop i want this snack i want this ipad or whatever it may be when there's so much more depth and maturity awaiting for us when we let go of those sin sinful desires sinful addictions whatever we're going through so with all that i hope you can take something away but ultimately just abide in christ whatever that means in your week in in your context just meditate on that chew on that and hopefully it'll be a helpful reminder for the rest of the week so hope that was helpful i will be finishing john chapter four next week but until then hope this kind of stays with you abides with you and hope you have a blessed week with Christ.